the way that the brain deals with waste. And so the brain excretes or kind of gets rid of about seven grams of waste every single night. And it does this particularly during stage three sleep. And it's one of the reasons I started tracking my sleep was really to try and, you know, be clear. I want to get all the waste out. And it's one of the things that motivates me to sleep is, is you know, the idea of my, my brain takes pretty good care of me. I mean, I have a wonky brain. I've struggled with all kinds of strange things over my life. But overall, my brain's taking really good care of me. Just like, Doug, your brain's taking really good care of you, you know? So, and I think most people listening, if we think about it, all the things you did today, you didn't even think about from waking up to breathing to, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it feels like us returning that favor and taking good care of our brain and letting it clear out all its waste is really, I find that very motivating. Um, I don't even, all I have to do is go to bed. That's the other thing. Think about all like, I try to every night, Doug, take out the trash like I'm supposed to. And I'm, I'm like 80%, right? But it's crazy. You go to bed, your brain takes out the trash. You don't have to do anything. Just close your eyes. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Drew Ramsey. He's a psychiatrist and one of psychiatry's leading proponents of nutritional psychiatry and the author of Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. He is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. He founded the Brain Food Clinic in New York City, offering treatment and consultation for depression, anxiety, and emotional wellness concerns. The clinic incorporates evidence-based nutrition and integrative psychiatry treatments with psychotherapy, coaching, and responsible medication management. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Drew Ramsey to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Ramsey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Doug. It's really great to be here with you. Yeah, I'm excited to to dive into your work, man. It's fascinating. It's so fascinating. And, And one is because you're an actual psychiatrist, you have a clinical background, and you also are somebody who is on the forefront of talking about how nutrition can be used as a way to battle mental health, to improve the way we, we um, manage depression, anxiety, that sort of thing. But there's a, there's a lot of talk right now about the healing benefits of food. And there's people that will say, oh, like, just eat this to improve your mood or eat this to reduce your anxiety. So I guess where I want to start is if you had to say, like, out of all the information that's out there, like, what are three things that are actually true that's backed by science when it comes to nutrition and how it can be beneficial for the mind? And then what are three things that are just plain old myths? Truths and myths. I would say... One thing for sure that's the truth is that food impacts your brain health and mental health. There's just a lot of irrefutable evidence about that that I don't think anybody disagrees with. And I think that's very motivating for us. I think that would be like the number one truth. I think the number two truth is while food is brain medicine and food is medicine, that there can be a lot of hyperbole and inadvertently a lot of stigma generation around actual mental health treatments. So oftentimes the people who are, I don't know, uh, preaching a certain type of diet or a certain singular superfood that's going to cure everything, 
you know, inherent in that usually is and gets you off your medications and is the secret to your recovery and mental health. And I think you and I as mental health veterans know that's BS. <laughs> so, but, but anyway, in terms of asking you about truth, so I would say that there's certainly a truth that there's hyperbole, which I think you're alluding to. I think a third truth is that we're learning a lot about mental health. And I hope in all of my work and in my messaging, people really do hear what you mentioned, that I'm a clinical psychiatrist. I saw patients all day right before this interview. I don't know, probably approaching 30 hours of Zooming this week. I love clinical work. I love working with people and understanding. I think that sort of humbles you unless you understand that there, there aren't a lot of silver bullets other than people dedicating themselves to inner work. And that always pays off. So... I guess we could move to like the, the myths that I see. There's a myth that the important value in talking about food is around meat. I think that's the biggest myth right now in terms of that's the big environmental impact and that's the big um, nutritional impact. And I think that's uh, really false. Not that I love plants. Plants are awesome. I, I think it's really interesting. I was vegetarian for a long time. But to me, in terms of challenges or, or myths, that that's one. Either that plant-based diets are good for your mental health. Most of the data says that that's questionable at best, or you know that extreme diets are what you want to employ for mental health. There's certainly a few interesting moves emerging in the data, but I think there's a lot of you know myths. Part of that, in terms of um, just quickly where that comes from, is that we 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 need to think about the population-based data and apply that to us as individuals and to think about what the differences are between you as an individual and the population-based data often that's being used in kind of your health choices. Let's talk a couple other myths. I say one myth is, I would say that celery juice cures anything. I think that's a myth. In fact, if you look at the hard, true evidence of nutritional psychiatry, the only thing that technically celery juice in promoting it might do is increase hospitalizations for mania, according to the most recent evidence. So. Now, why is that? Is it just because people are just cutting out all these other nutrients out of their food and they're just... No, that's a provo- that, That's because I'm being a little bit of a jerk jug that uh, I think folks who promote things around mental health don't have training and clinical experience and consequences of the recommendations. I don't know, that's kind of one of my pet peeves. So uh, it's because celery juice has a lot of nitrates in it. And if you look at so there's data recently about bipolar disorder in a strong correlation, like six times, which is you don't see, like six x uh, increased risk, increase uh, in terms of hospitalization for mania for people who are daily consumers of nitrated meat products, like beef beef jerky sticks. So if you eat a Slim Jim beef jerky type stick every day, at least that population, there's a strong correlation. Correlation doesn't equal causation, but what's interesting if you look at how those types of products work. In kind of mouse models, there's a lot of activation of the same pathways that seem to be activated in individuals when they have mania. So, but anyway, that, that myth I think is silver bullet cures. And I'm a guy who promoted kale. I love kale. You know, I, I founded National Kale Day. I wrote Fifty Shades of Kale. Like I'm, I appreciate idealization and celebration of foods. That's not what I'm talking about. I think I'm talking about people taking mental health, which is super complex, involves our development, our genetics, our environment, our our own personal psychology and temperament and reduces it down to you know, just what you eat. And I think at its worst, that's sometimes what nutritional psychiatry gets presented at, so. Right, right. Oh boy, I've gotten lost track of it. I, I don't feel like I gave you three truths or three myths there very succinctly at all. <laughs> well, I think the truths you talked about are that the way we eat impacts our, our mental and brain health, right? You said that there is a lot of research being done right now on 
on food and the, and the impact of mental health. Let's talk about a third truth, which is that for the first time in our history as human beings caring about mental health and food, they're randomized trials. So up until about five years ago, I've been talking about nutritional psychiatry for probably about 15 years, maybe more. But, but five years ago, we, we got all this data, randomized trials saying, hey, if you take a depressed population and you teach them and encourage them to eat a Mediterranean diet, a significant portion of that population hits full remission. And, I, and, and Doug, I'm really curious what you think when you see studies about that. I really appreciated what you shared um, as we were opening up, just the, your own journey to recovery and what you're working on of, of just like what you think about when you see data like that. Like one, is kind of recovery possible without proper nutrition? And, and also whether that data makes sense to you, that people who really kind of gather up their lifestyle, you know, some of that takes discipline and habit, some of it takes education, like whether that's really an important piece of people getting better. I do. I mean, I know my own experience in recovery and one of my core messages has been, you know, you can get sobered, but it doesn't mean you're going to be healthy. It doesn't mean you're going to be happy. It doesn't mean you're going to thrive. And I think the beautiful thing about fitness and health is, yes, you have to do the other work. You have to do the inner work. You have to go back and work on your trauma and you have to, you know, make amends. You have to stay sober. You have to do all those things. But you also have to be able to learn to, de to deal with the things that you were using the drugs or alcohol to deal with in a healthy way now moving forward and, and, and taking a, a stand to better yourself. And I think nutrition exercise can do just that. And because I think in early recovery, especially I look back to me, the way I felt about myself in that time was crucial. Because if my self-esteem had gone any lower than it already did, or if I was in a bad mood, that's when cravings would come in. That's when I would be like, oh, I might as well just go back to to using drugs because- I don't feel better anyway. You know, like life's miserable, might have be drunk and miserable, right? Yeah. So what have you seen? I mean, you talked about remission. What have you seen in the research as far as people in recovery from addiction? Is there certain foods that people should stay away from? Is there certain foods that have been seen to help? Like, what does that look like? Well, uh, first of to be clear, as we move from depression and, and, and a little bit of data around maybe um, ADHD, anxiety, and, and dementia, we move into probably more my clinical experience and, and because there isn't a lot of data around nutritional interventions for people with substance use disorders, whether that be alcohol or, and, and maybe there's a little bit of data, but there's not, not, it's not prominent in the methodology of how to address those disorders. Certainly there's a lot of literature about Alcohol, individuals with alcohol use disorder, what you know, traditionally has been called alcoholism. But as you can hear in the language, there's really, a, I think, an effort of psychiatry to think about these as, you know, these are all substances. And there's a disorder in how people use them. But it's, and it's defined as a disorder because it causes you problems that you define in your life. So really trying to move away from that stigmatizing notion of addiction, right, that's been so prominent, I think, from psychiatry and, and made it hard for people to kind of reach out to us and, and help them take steps towards recovery. So certainly there's a lot of sugar and, and, and carbohydrate craving related to alcohol use disorder, in part because as you're drinking and drinking a lot, taking in a lot of sugars, there's a lot of, you know, just like a smoker has a kind of oral fixation. I'm just in the process of, of helping one of my patients taper off vaping and another trying uh, helping him get off of uh, cigarette smoking after relapsing after a number of years during the pandemic. And, you know, part of besides the craving and anti-craving, maybe medications or replacement therapies briefly, you know, getting people to deal with things like 
those physical cravings, oral cravings, and and the sensations, I think that's where food can play a big role. Like, for example, for me, when I stop drinking, it's really important for me to stock my fridge with lots of great seltzers and lots of great non-alcoholic kombuchas, just because I like that at the end of the day and to kind of transition to that and then a really nice cup or two of, of herbal tea. But without that kind of replacement, I find myself having a harder time with that kind of what I think is a craving around sugar, sweetness, carbohydrates, and some of that I would say like pleasure, as you were talking about, in terms of doing something that betters yourself, right? I think other ways that food gets used is, is when, you know, what you were talking about, I think it's really key about self-esteem and, and where you are and how you regulate your self-esteem because, you know, there aren't severe, immediate physiological consequences of eating crappy food. People feel a little worse, but it's not like, blah, you know, you die, right? And I think for me, one of the real implications is psychological. As you said, like, I either know... And, and we think about this in nutritional psychiatry and in my work, my books really is like, you know, I'm doing what I can because there's I only so much in my control to take little steps to really insulate myself and support my mental health and my brain. And it's also, for, I think, for people who are in recovery, something to do. You know, if you're chopping vegetables for half an hour, I mean, it seems really boring, but part of being in early recovery is boredom. Right. Of just like and so cooking for yourself, cooking for others, you know, it's not as thrilling or as exciting. And but it's better than sitting around watching TV and it leads to more nutrition and good habits. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offers plant based nutrition made with high quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than three grams of sugar per serving. This includes Organifi green juice, which I am now using in my smoothies, either after a workout or for a great on-the-go snack. It's loaded with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Cutting down on caffeine is a big initiative of mine as we head into the new year, and Organifi's red juice is going to help me do just that. It's basically a superfood fruit punch that gives me a jolt of energy without the caffeine, and it only has two grams of sugar. If you aren't into smoothies, don't worry. Organifi products are super easy to mix, and you can add one scoop to a glass of water. So go to www.organifi.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug for 20% off your order. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash Doug and use the code Doug for 20% off any item. Now back to the show. And I think you start to stack these good habits and you start to develop this, you know, what's next mentality and I can do this mentality because you're working that muscle of determination, you're working that muscle of perseverance, you're working that muscle of accomplishment and you begin to realize like, wow, this isn't as hard as I thought it was. And then you want to do more of it. You're like, oh, like it's not that hard to eat a serving of vegetables. Well, let me do more because I'm seeing the benefits from it. So I guess my question is as far as like from a, like a, a scientific perspective in the brain, I would say that most people know that if they eat healthier foods, they will feel better about themselves. I think people have that idea, but people have a hard time making that switch in the brain to really actually taking that belief and putting it into action. I mean, have you discovered like why that is? Well, I think while we can all agree, you know, what we eat dictates some of how we feel, we have a harder time thinking about how, how dietary choices and I also put in their alcohol choices, which is a big, you know, big part of Americans. Most, most people, or a lot of people listening, maybe your audience has a lot of folks in recovery, but you know, a fair number of calories come from alcohol too, or, or other beverages, right? The lattes, uh, you know, pumpkin spice latte has a whole, whole lot. There's a whole lot of calories in that spice. So, so, so I do think that there, there are, you know, some key 
reasons that we have disconnects. You know, one is that mental health is kind of, I think, stigmatized and it's hard for us as we've been pushing and, and trying to destigmatize mental health conditions as having really biological basis. The idea that like something like food, right, impacts something like alcohol use disorder or depression or ADHD, I think it's a, it's been a little hard leap and there has been a lot of professional support. It's not like when you go talk to a mental health professional really ever before in history, they say, hey, let me take a, a clear accounting of what you eat and let's think about some of these foods together. Let's think about some of your goals and how some of between sessions, when you're out there, you're in the grocery store, you're feeding yourself, let's think about two things. One, let's think about how you nourish yourself and what that teaches us about you. Right? Do you avoid the grocery store? Do you plan things out? Do you lovingly cook for yourself? You know, like, what do you do? And then two, let's make sure you're getting all the nutrients that, you know, the data is really clear. Most Americans aren't getting zinc. You know, about half of Americans don't get the daily recommended allowance of zinc. That's a nutrient that literally signals the genes that tells your brain to recover and grow. And that's not like weird science. That's just like how zinc influences the promotion of a molecule called BDNF, which is kind of a miracle grow for the brain type molecule. So that, that's what nutritional psychiatry is really trying to do, is, is encouraging self-care and self-nourishment in really kind of specific ways around food categories. So, you know, you're asking, like, what works in recovery? Like, definitely focusing on carbs and having healthy carbs. So you're craving pasta, right? Pasta and red sauce, okay, it's, it's a lot of sugar, you know? If you can switch over to maybe like a gnocchi with pesto, right? Maybe have a little wild salmon with that. So you're adding in some protein, so you're going to block wanting to just as I do, keep eating that gnocchi until there's no gnocchi anywhere near me. <laughs> so, um, right, so to sort of understand where you get into trouble, you know, I get into trouble when I'm um, at my mom and dad's house and they have all these little jars of like every cracker and cookie I could ever possibly want. It's loving. It's a loving act. But man, I'll find myself there with like three jars open, just hoovering down the Triscuits and the whatever. And it just, you know, I'm not, I don't know. So I think catching those habits um, and catching ourselves in those moments is really also a key, a key part of it. Right. And you brought up a good point that like in traditional medicine, it's not like you're going to the doctor and you're saying you have depression or anxiety or even that you're even overweight or have high blood pressure. And they're saying, hey, like, what do you what do you get at the grocery store? Do you shop on your own? How many nights do you eat with your family? Like how many days a week are you going to the gym? It's more or less here's a prescription pad, like here's a prescription. And I, again, I'm not an anti-medication guy, but this is just what I've experienced in my own life. And you're, and you're somebody who's, who's, who's in both lanes, right? You're in the traditional medicine route where you have the clinical background, but you're also in this rising, now I don't want to say holistic because you do obviously have the, the medical background, but this wave of now we have to be more proactive in the way that we treat our health. So what do you think is like the path forward for doctors, for people to help us combat these this massive epidemic that we're facing. I think those are great points, Doug. I think one, people's medical experience in the medical system, until you're really sick, is often very bad. You know, we love the doctors who save our lives, but you go to your primary care doctor and there's not a lot of time. And we don't have anything set up. Like if you're a primary care doctor, I don't have a nutritionist or dietitian usually to refer to. Insurance is not going to cover that unless you're really sick. I mean, it's really so there are some changes. I don't want to be pessimistic, but it's the way we think about primary prevention doesn't include a lot of food messaging. And it's food messaging that doesn't work. I mean, one of, part of what inspired me to get into this field and, and kind of help develop nutritional psychiatry, one, there was no talk of food in mental health and in psychiatry training. But two, I felt like the messaging that I was giving my patients, hey, don't eat any fat, guys. Don't eat any salt. Don't eat any cholesterol. Those are all like interesting points to talk and debate, but those are really ineffective messages for behavioral change. All that causes people to do, for the most part, is eat carbohydrates. 
And that really isn't what we want to do. What we want to help people do is focus on feeding their neurons, feeding their health with, with more whole foods. You know, all of these studies focus on the Mediterranean diet, but really what the data says is we want to move people off of highly processed foods. Uh, the biggest, uh, the best study in this where a third of patients with depression went into full remission. We're able to reduce about 20, 21 processed food meals per week. And replace that with like an you know an extra serving of fish a week, an extra serving of fruit and vegetables every day. As you said, like an extra serving of, you know, just drop some greens in and and begin to take those little steps. So it is an exciting time. And I, yeah, well, no, I, I think you brought up an interesting point. I think you, that we got to focus on what's worked. And if you're saying that there's some data that suggests that eating a more he- heavily Mediterranean focused diet. For people with depression can be the path forward to not only help with their mental health, but I would imagine it's going to help with their physical health too. It, for sure. And let's be real specific for everybody listening. Like, what do I mean by that? Because it sounds, you know, I'm from rural Indiana before I moved to New York. You know, Mediterranean diet was like, like Italian food. It's like Pizza Hut, right? That's, you know, so Mediterranean diet to me, the first, number one, first thing I think about is what oil are you gobbling down, cooking your vegetables in, using the, the majority of your calories? Because like, coming from which fat? And for me, I know 100% it's olive oil because there's a, I'm going through multiple big jars per month for my family of four. I'm looking to get a significant portion of my calories from olive oil. And I'm sauteing all my vegetables in it. One of the reasons a lot of people find plant-forward diets not so satiating is they're also low fat. And I really think fat is a great thing to be eating a fair amount of and trying to get a lot of calories from monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. So that's going to be your olive oils, your seafood, and, and your you know probably wild meats, I would put in there, and nuts as well. And that's the way we kind of begin to Mediterraneanize the diet. Um, you know, other things that just, I would say are superstars, I focus on them on Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. My new book has my list of power players. I had a lot of fun promoting kale, uh, but... It's fine for me if you don't ever eat kale. What's interesting and important, I think, is that category of leafy greens. And so the power players kind of draw from the different food categories that I really try to emphasize as a nutritional psychiatrist. So things like small fish in the bivalves, clams, mussels, oysters, anchovies, sardines, wild salmon, herring. Most people don't have these in their diet. And kind of why not? Usually it's lack of experience, lack of education, lack of knowledge, and then also how to know how to begin to experiment a little bit. I didn't eat any seafood or fish until I was 30. So I know a lot about this process. So that was disgusting. And now, you know, I shuck oysters and not because I'm like, oh, it's brain food. I got to like grin and bear it here. But because I really, I, I enjoy that food, what it means to me, how it tastes. So I, I think there's a lot of, um, I guess, encouragement. I want people to feel that as you hear a Mediterranean diet, that sounds weird. Like this means olive oil. It means more roasted vegetables, more nuts and seeds and more seafood. And, and, I have this little rhyme, seafood greens, nuts and beans, and a little dark chocolate. It's just the kind of way that as you're thinking about your week right now, like how many of those foods and food categories did you nail? And if not, you know, you got an awesome quick step for maybe a little goal. And I so often meet people who are like, oh, I, you know, I really like sardines. I haven't had those in a while. Or, oh, I don't have a recipe for those. And I say, hey, check out, I've got a great all-kale Caesar salad in the most recent book. Like, uh, there's an amazing dashi if you like things like ramen. There are all kinds of ways to approach these food categories that can be challenging for a lot of us. Well, that makes sense. And I've heard you talk about the importance of kind of moving towards a more Mediterranean-focused diet if you're trying to 
you know, improve your mental health, if you're trying to, um, I mean, it really, it's overall health, like the Mediterranean diet has always been talked about as being like one of the best approaches. So let's just say somebody's listening to this right now, and they, they've struggled with anxiety off and on throughout their life, and they just can't seem to get a grip on it. From a nutritional perspective, if you could maybe give this listener or somebody some tips on, okay, these are a couple foods that are scientifically backed to help you with your anxiety, and these are just a couple that are going to really make you feel more anxious, what would they be? So the first step when I encounter anxiety is trying to help people think through and understand a little bit of an inventory of what part of their anxiety is a superpower, because anxiety is a superpower. I mean, anxiety has kept us alive. You know, it's a big part of our intuition. One of the first things when people are like, oh, I've got a feeling and intuition, usually it was a worry, you know? I mean, and, and it's like, I, this isn't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a left turn here, not a right turn. So differentiating what's sort of your superpower and what I would call the doctor pathological you know, anxiety where like when you're done with you're like that, that was not superpower. That would be like grinding on whether, you know, I uh, did this or that or, or said this or that at a party. So, so just to start with that. And then in, in terms of anxiety, the data is limited. Certainly for people who have gluten sensitivity or gluten issues or food sensitivity issues, cutting out those foods has significant impact. So a good example is people with gluten sensitivities is documented. You eat things that have wheat or gluten containing products in them and you get a lot of gas, distension, diarrhea. It's very unpleasant. And for some patients, it's really worse. Eventually over time, it erodes the line of your intestine. You don't absorb enough B12. It can really be severe. And most people, there are millions of people in America who have not just gluten sensitivity, but full celiac disease that don't know it. But, but anyway, about 75% of those individuals have severe anxiety. And if you take them off of uh, gluten, put them on a gluten, you know, take them off the food that, that is triggering their food sensitivity, they go down to normal levels of anxiety, about 20%. So it's sort of one way to think about it. In terms of foods that I think of in relationship to anxiety, it's really troubling because there's not a lot of data. There's one correlational study about choline, which you find in tofu and eggs, but it's not the type of data that would want us you know, really pushing or recommending those foods. However, when I think about, all right, what does an egg provide for someone who's anxious? It provides lots of B vitamins. It provides a nice kind of shot of protein and fat. It's a very low calorie food. So you get this mix of satiation, but not getting a lot of calories. And it's very nutrient dense. One of the reasons eggs are on the cover of Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. But again, this isn't the most solid, significant data. But when I think about people with anxiety, first I begin to think about B vitamins and protein and where I see those in their diet. Because those are the nutrients that are most linked to anxiety and kind of where nutritional psychiatry comes from is we looked at what nutrients are most important for mental health. Things, you know, everybody knows B12 is super important for mental health. But if you ask anybody, doctors, patients, like, hey, what's the top nutritional source of B12 out there in the world? Like nobody knows. Or like, hey, you know, folate. We all agree folate's super important for mental health, right? It's in prenatal vitamins. Like, what are the like, top five sources of folate? We should all know, right? You have like the most amazing miracle between your ears, the human brain. It runs on, you know, 30-odd nutrients. You'd think we'd like be like the first thing they teach us in school, right? Like, these are the five foods you got to eat to get folate. So, by the way, the top source of B12, I don't mean to be a jerk and tease people who don't. I didn't know this stuff either. Uh, but the top source of B12 is clams, which is really interesting, and bivalves. Clams, mussels, and oysters are super concentrated in that. And folate, which is vitamin B9, you find really high concentration in lentils. One of the reasons we have a lot of lentils in our house. 
but also in asparagus. And there's a lot of B12 in a lot of other places too, but just to mention that. But foods for anxiety, I would say, is looking at fats and proteins, focusing on where you find those B, B vitamins. So thinking about the foods I just mentioned. I'm also thinking about uh, foods that trigger anxiety, right? Yes, what we would avoid. And that's, you know, people taking a careful inventory about caffeine in their life, what it means to them, where they use it, how dependent they are. I meet so many people who have either sleep apnea or just bad, you know, bad modern sleep hygiene, right? I don't try to go to bed until 11. Like when people are like, oh, I sleep eight hours. I'm just like, I, I don't, I, anybody right now listening to this who are like, yeah, I definitely, I get about eight hours of sleep. I just want to call Bouchard and I challenge you to prove it to me and to Doug. <laughs> why, are you, why are you picking on me? I drink too much caffeine and I go to bed at 11. <laughs> well, because uh, I care about I know, you. No, I'm joking, mom, I'm joking. But, but no, 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 but I feel, because I do that too sometimes. I'm sitting here with my Earl Grey cup of tea, which is maybe a better choice than coffee for this time of day for me. But because I've been tracking my sleep for a year and it's where it's so actually hard to get four good sleep cycles for if you have any, I would call it complications. Like if you have pets, if you have kids, if you have a partner, if you, (laughs) you know, if you have a job that you worry, it's just getting solid sleep is a real challenge in my experience from trying to do it. So, but anyway, just quickly food drinks, looking for those sources of caffeine, which can be, you know, some people get surprised. Like the other day I had a cliff bar and it had, it had like, I don't know, 50, 75 milligrams of caffeine in it. Really? Yeah. And, and my kid had picked it out. He's like, oh, this one looks like a good flavor. I'm like, all right. You know, it's like better than a candy bar I thought. And then you look at it, it's like, so there's a lot of different stimulants and caffeines. There are, you know, green tea powder, guarana powder. So I ask people to just kind of look at that. If you're, if you're taking a bunch of supplements or you have a protein powder in the morning and you haven't flipped it over and read through it, especially if it's advertised for metabolism, you're taking a bunch of phytochemical stimulants most likely. So I look for those. And, and then I said the other is a lot of times I see a lot of people searching for all the food causes, searching for all the food causes, and they need a good course of CBT. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a, is a therapy that is evidence-based to deal with anxiety. It's a short-term therapy that teaches you tools, which people like, you know, my therapies tend to be long-term and people are like, am I going to see you, you know, how long am I going to see you kind of worries. And, and lots, so CBT is just cognitive behavioral therapy, something I think people should know about as well as, you know, improving diet. And then all my patients with anxiety are just like, they always say the thing that helps the most is exercise. And, and in my experience, having anxiety, I think that's really both, I would say exposure and exercise are the two that, that for me, having had a lot of anxiety throughout my life from ranging from, I don't know, like stage fright to, to some panicky stuff. Like I just find incredible confidence and exposure. And the more that you do that and the more you confront anxiety head on, find the faster it goes the way, the more that you do and challenge yourself with the things you're worried about, the, the faster that resolves. So let's dive into that because I think that's a, an approach that, you know, maybe people might not be as familiar with is, is exposure. And I've, in my own experience with anxiety and panic, I've found that when I've tried to fight my anxiety and fight the panic it makes it worse when I'm trying to just push it away instead of just letting it go. And I read this book that changed my life. It was it was called like Dare, I think. I forget who wrote it, but it essentially taught you how to just almost invite more anxiety into your life when you're having the anxiety because it helps you to just accept it as part of where you're at and you don't try to create a bigger stress response. So when you talk about exposure, like what do you really mean by that? And if somebody's listening to this and they're feeling anxious or they're having some sort of panic, how can they use that to help mitigate the their feelings? 
For sure. And so I think there are two ways to think about this. I think there's actual ways, uh, like clinical exposures, people who really have crippling anxiety. And so I don't want to have anybody who has those conditions or, or something like obsessive compulsive disorder where there's really, you know, having a skilled exposure therapy clinician is important. I'm really indebted. I feel like my education in anxiety comes from Blair Simpson and the, the Anxiety Disorders Group at Columbia, which is just a leader in this field. And I always remember a grand rounds that she gave around treating people with really severe anxiety and, and the importance of exposure. Exposure actually beating some of the medicines. But it had to be daily exposure. The, the error that so many people made is like, you know, going once a week and like hold the snake or, you know, confront the germs. And that doesn't work. You got to do it every day for a couple hours. So that, that's clinical exposure. I think what, what you're asking, what I mean about, is I mean about the process by which when we sit and understand our fears and the ones that we can confront, we confront them in an active way. I think it's very empowering for all of us as individuals, developmentally, and, and I would say also spiritually. So when I think about exposure, I think, for example, I'm, I'm really, uh, my friends, I, I don't surf very much, but I'm really, I get very anxious about sharks, like really anxious about sharks. And so for me, kind of being out there or uh, I get really anxious about the water in the dark. And so last time I was near a surf break, you know, before sunrise, uh, you know, I don't know, I found, my, I found myself pushing out into the water, you know, and feeling the fear come. And, and, and I wouldn't say welcoming it, as you say, daring, but, but in some ways really wanting to breathe through it and really let myself know that this is going to be okay. And so I think that would be an example of uh, an exposure. I would say others can be, uh, a lot of people I think have fears around confrontation or fears around clearly communicating. So I think kind of really dedicating oneself to that. So basically things that make you anxious, one, sometimes, again, that's a superpower. It's a good signal. Avoid that stuff. Don't be anxious about stuff you don't like. <laughs> you know, like but, you know, oftentimes things that make us anxious, is, you know, it's a real signal of an opportunity. Because oftentimes anxiety and excitation, Doug, are very, like, cross-wired in people. Yeah, and I think when it... Wow. I mean, I believe when it comes to anxiety, when it comes to fear, my own personal experience is what I'm speaking from, is it sometimes the the fear of the outcome, the fear that we create in our head of what's going to happen when we do that thing is way bigger than the fear itself. And the example I I like to use, because this is something that I have struggled with, is for the longest time I had I was so nervous to ask a girl out like in a grocery store. Because I was just so either insecure, I was like, all right, if she says no, then every other girl is going to say no. And what, what did I do? I created this bigger outcome where I said, okay, if, if she says no, that means every other girl is going to say no. Instead of what it really was, was, okay, if she says no, like she says no, and it's just her, like move on, there'll be somebody else. And I think a lot of people do that when it comes to certain things that they're trying to tackle too. It could be applying for a job. It could be creating a podcast. It could be standing up for themselves in a situation where they don't feel comfortable, whatever it is, where they are attaching this expectation of what's going to happen and, and making it so that it's going to be like that forever instead of it just in that moment. Yeah, I mean, Doug, you touched on a few of my favorite points I like to make with patients. One is what we call catastrophization, right? That we we future paint and it's going to be like, Horrible. And I think the problem with that, number one, is it disempowers us because it sort of says, oh, we're going to freeze in time and then the, all this bad stuff's going to happen and we're not going to react. And that's not true of us, right? That we always are adjusting and paying attention and thinking and worrying. So uh, that's one reason catastrophization is so, I don't know, horrible. It's, it kind of makes it sound like what? So like when this bad thing starts happening, you're not going to like change your stance or do something different or, you know, like... 
so that, that's one one thing that that uh, you know certainly I think is important in all of us to to spot and really I would say I talk about the deconstruction of it of what's the meaning of that and why we're doing that to ourselves. You touched on it is really encouraging myself and and people I work with to focus on process versus outcome. Not that I don't care about outcomes. I've published books. I really care about those and, and getting those finished. It wasn't just the process. But when I think about what was really, what's really valuable to me in all of that, it's been the process of it. It's been the, the working with the illustrator on the last book and the editors. It's been you know, growing a community online and, and interacting with lots of you know, people in, a, in, I guess, somewhat random way, but over time, really meaningful way. So it's that you know, process of, of being creative and translating the science or being creative and working with patients that matters to me. And I think I've learned that really early in my career, just in terms of outcome, like talking about recovery, if I'm working with an individual and they relapse, if I'm just outcome focused, what, like I'm a bad doctor and they're a bad patient. Whereas if I'm process focused, you know, like that, that happens all the time. You know, what can we learn from that? What, what, what should we do differently? Is there anything we could have done differently? Maybe that was just going to happen. I had a patient relapse and it was like, look, there's nothing anyone could have done. I was determined to do that. You know, so, and I think it's what we value in our life. We value the, you know, we, we value that feeling of sitting around jamming together with our friends versus, I don't know, like putting the album out there, right? Most of us sit around and jam with friends. That's the where the pleasure and the healing is. You brought up relapse and I think, I mean, this could be a good time for you to talk about this and, and any insight you have on, there's a lot of people, you know, when this comes out, it'll be 2022. There's a lot of people that are going to start a new eating plan and they're going to go all in on, you know, cutting out all the processed foods, switching to a Mediterranean diet and what have you. And then there's going to be times where they slip up and they either maybe cheat or they eat something they didn't want to. And then from there, instead of continuing and accepting that as part of the process, they attach themselves to the outcome and they're like, oh, I'm just done. I'm going to go back to eating the way I was eating last year. So what advice do you have? What do you tell your patients when they're on that path, when they're on the journey to making a, a health transformation and they end up having a setback or a slip up? You know, I think I listen about how it happened, you know, because oftentimes people are really, really good when they slow down and stop beating themselves up about it. Just kind of like understand how it happened, right? At what point did you understand it was going to happen? What did you do about it? I think oftentimes people use slip-ups and, and really, we talk a lot about this in our clinic. One of our clinicians, Samantha Elkreef, is just really great about this and, and making sure people don't do this. We're just like, okay, so, you know, whatever, you broke a rule. We're looking at 21 meals a week, you know, say 28 eating things if you snack once a day. Uh, so, uh, tw- 20, it's so, uh, all right, you know, maybe that's also telling you, you need to build some of that in and your plan's too stringent. You know, if I don't have a little ice cream or brownie every now and then, I don't know. I, I just like that stuff. I, I don't care that it's not that good for me. You know, I, I do some things every now and then that aren't the best, best, most optimal for my health. So, and I don't want to always like feel horrible and beat myself up about that. Like, also I have kids, but well, I'm going to raise my kids with that ice cream or cake. Like the hell I am, you know, I want my kids to, <laughs> if they want to, you know, certainly I'm going to try and educate them about sugar, but I'm not going to, I think there are ways to be healthy and still be able to live within, you know, uh, the modern foodscape. So your question, which is really good. So anybody, hi there, if you're in early other recovery or early uh, food changes, I think making the runway longer. And I think so often when people don't drink, they don't drink for 30 days. 
my experience with that is, I mean, that's a great accomplishment. If that's what you're doing, I think that's awesome. But I, I don't think any of the cognitive or emotional effects of stopping alcohol consumption really begin to emerge in the first 30 days. I think the same thing for food changes. You know, what we see with antidepressants and with psychotherapy, and I would say also with nutritional psychiatry, is you're talking about, uh, you know, a number of weeks, but optimally a number of months. Because if you think it underneath this, and I talk a lot about this in Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, underneath this, what we're doing biologically is we're shifting the brain towards more brain growth and away from a pro-inflammatory state. Not that everybody's brain is in some pro-inflammatory state. We just are living a lifestyle that's very pro-inflammatory. We have a, a new e-course, Healing the Modern Brain, that really focuses on you know, all of the various aspects in our lifestyle that can really increase our inflammation and, and, and what are some actionable ways that you know, every day we can take steps to you know, promote brain growth and, and decrease inflammation. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think playing the, the long game and lengthening the runway is so important for people. And I think also just focusing on where you're at because... You know, I say this a lot, and this isn't my original quote, but it's said pretty often is that, you know, you can't compare your chapter one to someone else's chapter 20. You have to really stay in the in the here and now and stop future tripping and stop catastrophizing and stop saying, okay, like, how am I going to eat healthy for the next five years when I haven't eaten healthy for the last, you know, five months or five weeks or 10 years or whatever the number is. And it's like, just focus on eating healthy for your next meal. It's like this dual nature that I think a lot of us, you know, who have changed some habits, you know, understand, which is like, there's both the long runway. This isn't 30 or 90 days is about living a more sober lifestyle. And at the same time, you only have to do one thing today. It's, just, it's not that hard to deadly. Like, what I've got like, you know, eight and a half hours till bedtime. Like I can do almost anything for eight and a half hours. Right. What, so, and I've always loved that focus that kind of comes out of, you know, being really mindful and present. Right checking in with what, if cravings come up, what they mean. And, and at the same time, giving ourselves permission that today isn't forever. Today's just one moment in our life. I also want to provide more encouragement. If you've made changes, I think that's awesome. I think if you're a few weeks in, you've learned things from those changes. You're learning what you're really craving and you're really missing. I think you're also learning where people have been helpful or not helpful. Like when I've uh, stopped drinking, I have some folks who get, give like uh I always liked IPAs and they get a lot of those like near beer IPAs. I just like, I have no interest in that. And I know it's like a really nice thing, but like for me that just can't, it's just, I don't know, that just not in any way part of my plan. Whereas for somebody else, man, that, that near beer plan or beer replacement, that's really great for them. So really I think honor what you are learning about yourself. And then I think just hang in there. You're a few weeks into something Right. And, and, and really, I think it's a time, gosh, I wish I could just show up in everybody's like car or wherever they're listening and give them a little like spirit rallying talk of just like, this is really the time to double down. Right. Cause you're beginning to think, oh, you're close to your finish line. You've done a few weeks. Right. But no, no, this is time to really double down. Like I'd commit to even longer. What does the, the research say about alcohol and anxiety? Because, and, and depression, I guess, too. Because obviously, when you, if you become an, if you have a drinking problem and you drink too much, it can start to impact your life in a negative way. But there's plenty of people right now that are drinking casually and struggling with anxiety and they're trying to figure out where that all comes from. So can just drinking regularly like impact people's anxiety and other areas of mental health? I think so. I mean, for sure. The, the research says that. I mean, alcohol is a central nervous depressant and what we experience is kind of calming us down or 
you know, and, and that disinhibition, that little, you know, euphoria we get, that's definitely a physiological effect of alcohol, but it's part of the effect of our nervous system kind of having the volume turned down. Usually on these, the prefrontal, uh, the part of your brain, it's funny, one of the uh, directors of the emergency room at Columbia Psychiatry talk about the, the, the superego, so the part of our brain or part of our mind that, you know, follows rules and gives us guilt and morals, like these, I would say that dissolves in alcohol. I.e., when we drink more alcohol, just like we get more disinhibited. And, and that's, you know, some of that's fun. People go, you know, dance a little bit more and maybe chat a little bit more. But I think alcohol is really awful for anxiety and depression. I think if you have either one of those two conditions, I think it's hard to get this out of people, right? To, in the sense of just to be really clear, like, let, yeah, let's just be really clear. Alcohol is really bad for anxiety and depression. And, you know, a lot of people do fine with a little bit of drinking. But what I think is happening today, particularly around alcohol in America, is just a, a, a lot of excessive drinking, particularly around COVID and anxiety. Alcohol is a very powerful anti-anxiety agent. I mean, if you look at what, you know, if I give somebody Xanax or Ativan, it's basically a pill form of alcohol. But both bind to the GABA receptor. And there's that, you know, kind of letdown, that feeling people have after you know, half a glass of wine is very physiological, right? It's, it's a GABA. GABA is the major disinhibitory, so, so kind of turning down the volume overall in our brain. It's a workhorse neurotransmitter. So, yeah. So I guess if you're struggling with anxiety and depression and you're on the fence, did you stop drinking for a while or not? I, I just probably put a big vote on like, yeah, just don't drink for a while. See how it feels. See where you get challenged. And then I just think if you're acutely depressed or anxious, if you're really struggling, it's hard because people use it as a medicine, you know, and it works, right? It calms you down. Maybe it helps you sleep, but it really doesn't work. And, and so the lots of, lots of great things, I mean, probably more around alcohol, more familiar with right now around medicines that help people. I think naltrexone is really interesting medicine that's really helpful for people in terms of both carbohydrate craving, but also alcohol craving and opioid craving. So, but yeah, those are, you know, I hope people feel my, uh, encouragement and I don't know I just think that uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of movement right now right there's a lot more sobriety there's a lot more you know uh, mocktail mixers and, and the idea that we want to you know I feel this like I want to dance and I want to have fun I want to socialize and be creative and and talk with people and be rowdy but I don't want to drink and and I don't I don't think I need to drink for any of that and and I think that's maybe hard, uh, or that's a, that's a hard kind of juncture right now where society is pivoting a little bit. At least, I, I, at least in New York, I've seen a lot more of that. It's funny people will do these sobriety challenges or dry January or sober October, and I'll ask them like, "So how did you feel?" And they're like, "Oh, I felt amazing." And I'm like, "So you're gonna drink?" And they're like, "Yeah, I'm gonna go back." I'm like, "You just told me how amazing you felt." <laughs> so, but I, it's so socially acceptable, and everybody kind of does it around their birthday. Everybody does it at tailgate. Yeah, look, I mean, you and I are men, also. I think it's hard. I mean, it's hard for everybody. I think for men, you know, I, I haven't been drinking for a little bit, not not as long as you, but like, you know, what do I ask you to go do? Like, you want to go shoot some hoops, bro? Like, you want to like get a cup of tea? It, it, it sort of right. feels, you know that traditional like you know what are the guys going to go out and do they're not going to go out and do like yoga they're going to go like get hammered and and it's it's i mean i think it's really i don't know a lot of my patients who don't drink they've been going to holiday parties and a few of them are like yeah i just get a beer but i go to the bathroom and i, I pour it out and i put water in the thing <laughs> and i sit and sip on it with everybody I toast everybody bah. and you know it, it's very it's 
I wonder what your tips are for men who are listening and women, but, but who are thinking about maybe, you know, to, you know, drink less or not drink. Like, were there things that really helped you? Yeah. I mean, my story is kind of unique in that I got into recovery when I was incarcerated. So I had that above my head when I got out that I was fearful of going back. But I think the thing that really helped me initially was fitness, was changing the way that I attached uh, behavior to an emotion. I talk about this often because and I, I have no therapy background. This is just me and my own logical mind, like thinking about how I did this. And that's that whenever I was anxious or stressed or depressed, I would take a drug back in the day. I would, for me, it was painkillers and Coke and pot. And so once I learned that I could be stressed, anxious, and depressed, which by the way, was were normal emotions considering what I was going through. I learned that when I would go for a run or if I did some push-ups or if I, you know, called somebody that I felt, you know, connected to in a way, or if I bettered myself, I felt better. Maybe not in the same intensity, with the same intensity that the drugs made me feel, but I felt better enough that I was like, oh, I don't want to use right now. And then I just started to stack those days. And then I started to get inspired to change other habits. And then I could go on and on with my own story. But in, in the make a long answer short, fitness, changing my habits, eating better, and focusing on how far I had come and how far I had to go was the catalyst for my change early on. Doug, thanks for sharing all that. I really appreciate you being upfront in public. And I think certainly your story is unique, but so many men and women have struggled with incarceration and, and the consequences with that. And I'm just so grateful that you've, you know, launched out of that and really, to, you know, just your, for your own personal fitness, but also inspiring other people that, you know, great change is possible. And, and st- I like how you're talking about stacking these habits. That's really how I think about it with patients of, and I'm trying to get them connected with community. I'm trying to get them moving their bodies. You know, we, we've increasingly been talking about mental fitness where, you know, I love being a therapist. I want to talk about your mom, your development, your trauma. I'm really interested in all that stuff. But there's also this part of me that, I'd say as a cheerleader, but like, no matter how much I help you understand about that, I also want to, you know, do my best as an agent of behavioral change to have you, you know, connecting and loving really deeply and, and, and taking care of yourself so you have a really long and robust life. And, and so, uh, yeah, it's really, it's wonderful to hear your, a little of your story of how you've, how you've done that. And it wasn't easy, right? But I think I think I made the example earlier. I made the statement that once you try just a little change, you try a little something, you realize like, oh, like this isn't as hard as I thought it was. And then you realize how much better it makes you feel in that moment. And you're, you're you say to yourself, huh, I want more of this. Like I want to keep feeling the way that this made me feel. And then that starts to add up, and it becomes this snowball effect. And over time, you look back, and it's been three months. You're like, wow, like. It started with me just going for a walk and now I just ran a 5K or it started with me just doing a push-up and now I've done 50 or it started with me asking one person out. Now I have three dates a week or whatever the the example is. But I, I know in order to to make a change, any kind of change and make it long lasting, you have to sleep well. So I think this is a good way to kind of segue into to sleep because we've talked about caffeine and I've told you that I probably drink you know, five cups of coffee a day, I'm the worst, but. I don't know whether you're the worst, Doug. I mean, I, I think if you sleep well, you know, I mean, like, I think, you know, which I would say for, you know, like seven, putting on solid seven, you know, I think that's, and I think it's also like, I don't know. It, I bet you're doing a lot. It seems like you're doing a lot, building a platform, have a platform, got a podcast, you know, working on a lot. So I wonder, you know, what pops into my head is how can, how, 
how do we take a habit like that and a statement hat like that? I mean, Doug's joking a little bit, but and and kind of have it be something that he feels really good about. Like I used to be like Doug, I drank a ton of coffee with milk in it, I had all these digestive problems. I'm not saying Doug does, but and and you know what I did? I uh, I swapped it out for Earl Grey tea. I got kind of like hooked on Earl Grey tea. And and now I don't know. And in that period of not having coffee, it's not I didn't have any headaches or anything, but it just kind of showed me that like almost almost like you were saying earlier about how when we future paint and catastrophize, you know, that like we're so dependent on caffeine and we're so dependent on the coffee. And it was funny for me personally to shake that up a little bit and then now have this like, I would say variety of, of, of mildly caffeinated beverages where I'll do a coffee, a couple of coffees in the morning and then, you know, a bunch of different teas and herbal teas. And well, I guess I appreciate you, your, your kindness with me, but I, you know, and I was clearly making fun of myself but I, so for the average person though that that wants to improve their sleep and they want to know the relationship that with of what they eat and nutrition plays into that you hear people say don't eat a couple hours before you go to bed you hear people say no caffeine after a certain time you hear people say don't eat this or don't eat that like those first two are great by the way the first two are really accurate you shouldn't eat late at night there's a really strong relationship between dementia risk and late night eating and it's also a time where people are struggling with like food quantity control. Like I'm a, I'm a little bit of a stress eater. And so like, if you get me going with the carbs and I'm worried, I'll really stay up late eating. Whereas like, if I'm asleep at nine 30, I'm not going to be in the pantry and, and dad's cookie jar at 1130. Like, Ooh, did I just eat 12 cookies? I'm like, uh Oh, so, so let's start at the beginning of the day. The first most important thing to do, no matter how tired you are tomorrow morning, is to get out of bed and go watch the sun come up. As you begin to do that, low lateral light is really, it's a special type of light. Uh, there's a really fun brain geek, super genius guy, Andrew Huberman at Stanford, who is an, is a, he's an ophthalmology professor. And Yeah, he's been on the show. Yeah, Andrew's great, right? And and so and I've always given patients this advice, something we know in psychiatry, but he really explains it in, in around the wavelengths that are going on in those early hours. And and what we've understand now and, and researchers have understood is that really begins to set the clocks. Right. So you get that early morning light, you that uh basically uh, tamps down all the melatonin production, what little is going still on there. You set your clocks, literally your, your, their clock genes that you have. And then I was thinking about that day, you know, if we're going to go to bed, which I'm going to encourage people to be in bed by 9 p.m., uh, probably at the latest, there are a couple of then key activities during this day. One you mentioned is nutrition, right? We not only don't want to eat late, we want to avoid stimulants. Those could be things even like dark chocolate, one of my favorites, or coffee, or, you know, if somebody's drinking, a, I've had this patient, people having a big, you know, their protein shake before they work out at four and they still can't sleep and we're looking and looking. And then, you know, again, you look at that ingredient list and it's filled with, you know, green tea extract and other, you know, stimulant analogs to promote weight loss. So making sure good sources of protein during the day, you know, particularly and good sources of fat. Again, just these being essential pieces, right? Where does melatonin come from? Melatonin gets made from serotonin in the pineal gland. Where does serotonin come from? Serotonin gets made from tryptophan and iron. Those are the two main things that, that and I think a little vitamin B9 in there, but it, you know, so making sure we have these essential elements for our brain to function. And, and those, you know, not too many specific foods. You will see people recommend foods with melatonin. There's no reason to do that. Things like dark cherry juice, that they have, you know, very, very small amounts. 
you know, when we give people melatonin to help them sleep, the recommendation is really one to three milligrams. I find a lot of people taking way too much melatonin, but the amount in these foods are picograms. I do think it's super cool to know what we call homology, that in the natural world we see melatonin in other species and organisms. I just think that's super cool. But it, those foods aren't going to help you sleep. And then in terms of then exercise, you know, even if that's stretching, and in, in my world I consider exercise movement. I go for a walk, brisk walk for 20, 30 minutes. You know, that counts. Then the next piece is shutting down the day which is when the sun goes down, your lights go off and you have really minimal lighting in the house. Even small amounts of light really prevent melatonin from being expressed and produced and released. So we really want dimmer lights and a kind of winding down period. And that's contrary to most, you know, a lot of people want, you know, a big dinner, watch TV for not want, but sort of, I don't mean to judge it, but sort of have a habit of that. And, you know, what you're doing there is getting a lot of visual stimulation late at night, right before sleep. So I try to ask people to cluster their watching habits, you know. So if you're going to have a big, you know, you love watching your live shows, like maybe that's your big Friday, that's your Friday night. But during the week when you're really more dependent on your creativity and wakefulness, you know, it's not nights to watch. That's nights to have a nice meal, maybe do some stretching, have a cup of tea and read something, go to bed early. So there is no mental health without sleep, right? You, it, and it's, it's really the other piece of sleep that, I, that our new course, Healing the Modern Brain, we focus a little bit on this and, and I'll, I don't know, I'll let you guys all hear about it because I just think it's cool. There's this new part of the brain that got discovered, which is the way that the brain deals with waste. And so the brain excretes or kind of gets rid of about seven grams of waste every single night. And it does this particularly during stage three sleep. And it's one of the reasons I started tracking my sleep was really to try and, you know, be clear. I want to get all the waste out. And it's one of the things that motivates me to sleep is, is you know, the idea my, my brain takes pretty good care of me. I mean, I have a wonky brain. I've struggled with all kinds of strange things over my life. But overall, my brain's taking really good care of me. Just like, Doug, your brain's taking really good care of you, you know? So, and I think most people listening, if we think about it, all the things you did today, you didn't even think about from waking up to breathing to, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it feels like us returning that favor and taking good care of our brain and letting it clear out all its waste is really, I find that very motivating. Um, I don't even, all I have to do is go to bed. And that's the other thing. Think about all like, I try to every night, Doug, take out the trash like I'm supposed to. And I'm, I'm like 80%, right? But it's crazy. You go to bed, your brain takes out the trash. You don't have to do anything. Just close your eyes. So... I find that very motivating and just to, again, one of the reasons we encourage people to get the eight hours of sleep is four sleep cycles. So you're getting four cleaning cycles of the brain because when you go to sleep, your brain cycles down very deep. So you go down into light and then deep sleep. And then as you kind of come back out towards wakefulness, this is when you have REM sleep, when you're dreaming, your eyes are twitching. And then you go back down again and you go down into that deeper sleep where you're doing the big brain cleaning. So sleep is key. And yeah, and I think you you made a really good point in that it starts at the beginning of the day. You talked about going out and referencing uh, Dr. Andrew Heberman and getting some sunlight as the sun comes up and then kind of how you navigate your day through that. I guess like the last thing I want to ask you is you kind of touched on this a little bit. You said that it's not like you're going to eat a certain food and then you're going to you're going to feel really bad, right? But I would imagine there are probably certain foods that after you eat them you probably won't have much energy, which I'm sure would affect your mood 
indirectly or directly. So would you say there's a few foods if somebody's listening that they're like, man, well, what what food should I stay away from if I want to feel my best? Number one for me would be liquid calories, including liquid calories and alcohol. But I just think that the people, and I'm guilty of this myself, you'll 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 down a thousand calories in a frappuccino smoothie thing, and that's that's half your caloric load for the day. So, and you do it fast, right? And that's just going to shut your whole system down. So I would avoid those liquid calories and things like that. It's where I, I almost always try and get my patients, you know, off of all sodas, switching over. To, there are all so many interesting beverages now from. Seltzers with a little tiny drop of juice to flavored seltzers to, you know, hop water. I mean, it's incredible. So getting off of liquid calories, I think that's number one. Two, I think big processed meals. It doesn't matter to me if it's your, you know, fried chicken meal from KFC or if it's a burger meal with fries or, you know, those, especially in the middle of the day, are just going to knock people down. It's already, there's already a melatonin secondary peak at about 3 p.m. Part of that, like, siesta phenomenon, eat rest, it does follow some natural biology. And so if if you're not in a position where you're going to take a little cat nap, you want to really be focused at lunch on like protein and crunchy plants. As you go into the carbs or as you go into big, meaty, heavy meal, it's going to put you down. I would say those are, in terms of people feeling acutely bad, I, I think part of the challenge is a lot of foods that make us feel bad it, it, there's not an instant, right? You can eat a whole bag of chips. You're not going to feel awful, right? I mean, little potato chips, right? It's a ton of calories, but your body handles, you know, body thinks it's like run into some, you know, delicious source of food that it should store up for the winter. It's like stoked you found a bag of chips. It's, so, but yeah, those would be the, I'm trying to think if there are other ones. I, I think some of, um, along with the liquid calories, some of the energy drinks, I think people feel really depleted like four to five hours afterwards, kind of like when I give patients stimulants and in mid middle of the day when the stimulant wears off, so they can get really sad or dysphoric or down. What about like sugary stuff? If you eat like a big like gallon of ice cream, you're going to probably come down off that. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I see that gallon of ice cream in the burger meal. Like in my mind, when you blend those up or kind of like what's in them, it's kind of the same thing. It's like a lot of sugar, a lot of fat, a lot of saturated fat. So, but yes, I think it's, you know, it's that difference. Like if you're craving, you know, if you're out and, and you're craving an ice cream cone, you know, it's, it's where I think the way that I think about food and nutrition and nutritional psychiatry is that one, there's value in just getting that sometimes, but really sitting and enjoying it and having it be a, a delicious ice cream cone wherever you are. Then there's a way to, you know, the kind of brain food dance of how do we swap or modify that so it's better for you in some way. Maybe that's going to like a sorbet or a gelato, or maybe it's going to some other type of treat that you feel is a little, you know, healthier. So yeah, but, but I would say those, those, those sugary meals for sure. Cause you know, sugars, simple sugars spike insulin. Insulin has lots and lots of effects on us and our body, including psychological effects. So it's, uh, you know, for, for sure those foods. Awesome. Well, I think people are going to get a lot out of this episode because, People are always looking for different tips on how they can improve their mental health. They're always looking for different ways, hopefully, where nutrition can benefit them in a positive way. If people want to find out more about your books, even your course, like where's the best place for them to connect with you? Yeah, super. Thanks so much, Doug. And so everybody, if, if you want to learn about our courses, we, we train clinicians with a how to do nutritional psychiatry and coaches. And then we have a course for, for you know, individuals really looking to live by the tenets of mental fitness and actualize those called Healing the Modern Brain. Everything's at DrewRamseyMD.com. And then 
I'm pretty active on Instagram, so it's an easy way to, to keep up with me. I try to kind of post some inspiring stories when I'm eating something good, when I'm struggling, I try to be honest about that. And I mostly just try to provide a feed that encourages everybody and uh, as well as men to, to uh, take care of their mental health and, and, and be active in that pursuit. So uh, yeah, I'm Drew Ramsey MD on all those platforms. And I really hope people will, will drop by. And Doug, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. It's not so often I get to speak to somebody who's you know, had such a such a great journey into health. And so I really uh, find it inspiring, man, and, and keep it up. And uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thanks again for coming on and congrats to you on, on your own journey. And I invite you know, people who are listening to this to, to let us know what you thought and share a takeaway with something that, that Dr. Ramsey said. Maybe it was about anxiety. Maybe it was about nutrition and some foods to stay away from. Maybe it was something he said about alcohol that really hit home. Maybe it was something that he said about the Mediterranean diet that you didn't know. Whatever it was, tag him. Tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of The Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.